You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Follow us into a fortress, a fortress so formidable its sales power defies the imagination, because this is the year of Star Wars Return of the Jedi, the movie that brought victory into the hands of the rebels at last, the movie that's the fastest moneymaker in film history. Yes, the fortress is ours. This is the year we see the enemy cowering in fear. When Kenneth Brand blows them from their bunkers into Bantha fodder. Because our 1984 Return of the Jedi collection is pure thermal dynamite. With enough of the force behind it to shatter every other energy shield in the marketplace. In fact, even at $2.5 billion for merchandising worldwide, the universe is asking for more. Of course, Kenneth packing the charge with 8 million advertising dollars. Add 25 to 30 million more from Lucasfilm and other Jedi licensees, and the impact should send even a scout walker staggering. Our plotting and planning will wreak havoc on the competition. For starters, you'll see television history made when Star Wars, the movie that triggered a toy revolution and detonated a decade of sales explosions, debuts on CBS in February. Because it's bound to keep the bonfires burning hotter than ever, we're bringing out our new Star Wars Collector Series. It's a Vectus special collection of the most popular Star Wars toys will beat the band for sheer demand. Not skipping a beat, we're running more new movie footage commercials with original soundtrack music on network TV that'll chase the competition from the floor of every store. Their sales will screech to a grinding halt. After all, we've got 79 action figures on our side and lovable Ewoks like Patrick and Chief Chipper working for us too. The dizzying race to empty shelf space won't stop there. We'll all be shifting into hyperdrive when our sensational TV promotion hits the air and Star Wars Return of the Jedi blasts back to movie screens across the country later in the year. The fireworks are just beginning, so join the Rebel fleet and watch the Empire meet defeat. You'll see Darth Vader face his fiercest duel and the galaxy surrender to Kenner rule. Time of defiance is upon us as Kenner soars to victory. Long live the Kenner Alliance! Hi everybody and welcome once again to GeekFest France. My name is Carlos Perón and today we have a pair of collecting stories for you having to do with Star Wars and then everything that's genre-related, you know, in my life. For the Star Wars side, we're going to continue with the Kenner line, but because we already exhausted all the lines that were out there, and even the Misfit toys that, you know, we included the last time we talked about this, this time we're going to go and talk about a proposed line of Kenner toys, action figures and ships, that once the line had ended, Kenner themselves suggested to Lucasfilm that they would like to continue manufacturing. 
They went as far as to create some prototypes, some designs, some sketches, but unfortunately the line never got off the ground. As you guys probably heard in our opening video, Kenner was really making lots of money. The audio you just heard from the video that I just played is probably one of the last ones that is available out there on YouTube because every year Kenner would promote you know, their product through these marketing videos to show potential buyers, you know, what an amazing product they had and how much money they were making and how much money that the marketing, you know, the promoting of these particular products was being handled, you know, not only by Kenner, but also by Lucasfilm and all these different outlets out there, you know, whenever the films would be aired on television, how much money they were going to pump into that too. So it's a way of demonstrating to buyers, you know, how much strength this product has. Now, you and I know that by the time that these things are airing, the product is starting to decline. The numbers are not as great as they were but it is still serious money that's being made and unfortunately you know they only had another wave to go before they kind of called it quits you know with these videos that were being presented for marketing purposes so one of these last hurrahs in terms of trying to generate some interest was this line that was designed to continue the post return of the jedi line by inventing a whole new story and continuing in a form of EU in a way before there wasn't a real EU. A lot of the reference pictures that I'm going to be talking about, you guys can find them in the Star Wars Collector's Archives. Look it up on the internet, it's theswca.com. And if you dig through those archives, there's so many of these pictures available of what could have been what almost got made that didn't and uh you know this potential line that never really made it anywhere then after that we are going to talk about a project that i built recently for my genre collecting uh, <laughs> interests and it's a uh, it's basically a road sign the type of road sign you would see maybe at a beach that shows you what direction to go here left or there right there this city there that city there i go into a lot of detail in terms of showing you how it was built what the inspiration was and you know how you could do it yourself and give you some ideas and i'm going to obviously put some pictures there for you to be able to see what the finished product looks like and it's the type of thing that you know you might want to shop around and you know get one of these depending on it but it, it is something that is so personal in terms of your particular interest that one of the best ways to do it which i found out is to just do it yourself if you have some beginner or intermediate carpentry skills it would help it takes a little time <laughs> it will take a few weeks to do it a little bit at a time but the end product is something really fun that especially for a you know a geek nerd family like mine it's something that everybody was able to contribute to by giving me you know everybody's different interests and combining them into this particular project so it's a nice little you know do-it-yourself kind of project that you could involve the whole family with so let's get started with the kenner 85 86 line that never was you can collect them all Batteries not included. Where does he get those wonderful toys? Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and 
and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. We're back with our favorite Star Wars toy line, and that is the Kenner line, the original Kenner action figures. We've, in the past, discussed the entire action figure line from Star Wars to Return of the Jedi, and we went a little beyond in terms of talking about all the misfit toys that are associated with that line. Toys that, for example, fall under the creature, or droid, or even character category that were figures and um, that were not necessarily carded creatures that were more or less you know figure size some of them not all of them but things that kind of fall under the basic character collection if you will you know if a cantina creature is considered a character why wouldn't the rancor be considered a character but obviously you can't card a rancor you have to sell him in a box but he is also not part of the action figure line wave so we had an episode that kind of included all those little misfits into a into one big show what we're doing today is we're looking at and this probably will be our final kenner related you know star wars piece we're looking at the post-Star Wars era, meaning that once it was official, that they knew for a fact that the Star Wars movies were done, you know, once that 1985 line came to an end, Kenner proposed continuing the line because obviously they were still making money, you know, not as much as initially, but they were still making money and they would have liked to continue making money. So what Kenner did is they proposed an entire new wave of new and kind of old figures, if you will, to continue the story. In a way, they were kind of pitching their own EU section here. And the way that they did it was they produced a mock-up book of potential action figures and vehicles and creatures and vehicles that Lucasfilm might turn around and say, yeah, let's do it. So... Let's look into a little bit of some of these, what you could consider to be prototypes. You know, sometimes these things are proposed, sometimes these things were already in the works, but because of the cutoff point, you know, when the line ended, everything went out the window. But it's interesting to know that Kenner, at least, was interested in continuing it. Now, in their EU, they would have figured some kind of a story you know, it's a typical, e- I'm sure it's a typical EU kind of story with some new characters and sidekicks and robots and creatures and this and that. But that's what one of the things to keep in mind is that they were just kind of spitballing here and brainstorming, trying to figure out, you know, what would stick. A lot of these proposed characters and vehicles are just concept art. And some of them went as far as prototypes by kit bashing you know some of their existing figures to create new ones and this is nothing you know nothing new this has been done in the past i mean sometimes they go as far as that the final product is a combination of old parts but sometimes it's just for the purpose of demonstrating to someone else what this thing is going to look like is you know the fact that they do take it you know from other different parts and just kind of slap them together First one we're going to look at is a robot called Blue 4 Droid. 
it is a, a complete it would it would have been a completely different mold they only had artwork for this nothing is really recognizable it's a, a stand-up robot very skinny on certain areas you could kind of say it's a little bit like the torture droid in java's palace you know uh, in terms of how tall and how skinny some of the uh, limbs would be completely original you cannot kit bash this thing then you have an imperial sentry droid now here what they did is they used a r5d4 and they basically painted it black they gave most of the red features of the r5 and some of and a lot of the white parts too and made them black and instead of having a white edging or white accents it's more of a silver so they you know they kind of go in that direction the fact that it says imperial sentry droid implies also that this is not exactly an eu kind of character more but more of a background return of the jedi character so this is supposed to be uh somebody who was in return of the jedi again continuing you know some of those background characters that were never made for the original trilogy imperial attack droid b this one is completely unusual in a way it is a complete kit bash because it has the word imperial i'm going to assume that they were maybe trying to imply that it came from the existing films but there's no way in heck you can dress this up as a an existing trilogy action figure it is a complete kit bash you have the 4lom body you have the zuckus face mask you have a zuckus body which is a robotic kind of a dark gray body with a couple of medical droid arms sticking up from the shoulders holding an upside down gun from 4lom what appears to maybe be some kind of a gun from a ship as a head with a medical droid breathing apparatus on its face really weird looking really easy to identify parts you know i don't think this would have gone anywhere then you have an imperial attack droid c again another one of these kit bash ones this one seems to have a couple of parts from fx7 it's kind of like an astromech if you will but it's got a ton of like missile launchers and guns and small rockets on top really awkward looking weird brownish you know almost like a copper color really unusual and it almost yeah you know what it seems to also have a a y-wing missile sticking out of the bottom like into the actual droid itself wow yeah kit bashing really goes out of control at times the rebel blockade runner this is something that was never built uh, never produced at least but they did produce a prototype which again you got to remember we've talked about this before that because of scale you could never make a blockade runner to scale you can only make it when you're dealing with like the micro collection or something very small like a die cast type of ship you know or a model obviously a model is the easiest way of doing it but here what they've tried to do is to create a a kind of like a mock-up i have the uh, the picture here like almost like the blueprint type of picture but then i have a, a picture of a mock-up that actually has a you know a look figure coming out of almost like the, the radar dish section so it is completely completely unapologetically out of scale the ship would probably be i don't know maybe twice as long as an x-wing so i can see why they never went forward with it because it just makes no sense to, to have something that like this to make it this size it's just awkward it's just a very awkward looking ship 
Now, there's here something called the Ewok Siege Vehicle. With Ewoks, they went completely crazy at some point, and they started to create all these accessories that I don't even remember if half of them even showed up in any of the films. Maybe on the TV movies, maybe they showed up at some point, but here... It's kind of, it almost looks like someone out of the, something out of the Flintstones. It's kind of like a wooden cart with four wheels and maybe a battering ram type of device in the front and a gigantic animal skull with horns on the top. It looks really bizarre. But heck, they, they did build a prototype apparently at some point. Now they do have the eight-wing fighter listed as a prototype, which is a little unusual. Because they did end up releasing this as part of the droids line. So maybe this is uh, something that they, that kind of piggybacked on the droid line. But at this point, I guess they were still trying to figure out whether or not they could produce it. Same thing with the Tatooine Skiff vehicle. This was actually released as part of the uh, final Power of the Force line. And I guess at some point they were trying to convince them to do that. And they did, which is good. The Skyhopper. Well, here's an interesting one. Because... The Skyhopper was eventually made way, 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 way later. I actually have one here. But apparently Kenner tried, you know, to talk him into making one. And at the time of this particular presentation, they were using one of the old Joe Johnston sketches, you know, as a reference point, which is unusual because if you think about it, a model of it exists. It was used in the movie that's been photographed. But I guess for action figure purposes, you would need to simplify it a lot more. You know, size-wise, you would be to reduce it quite a lot more for it to be able to fit an action figure inside. The Landspeeder, there's a picture of the Landspeeder in this particular presentation, and I think they only use it for reference because they are also trying to pitch a couple of other Landspeeders. So what you do is you have this new Landspeeder, which is kind of like the old one, except the it's a slightly different color. The jets are positioned slightly different, and it has additional jets on the middle fin. So this thing has a total of like four jets. It just looks like a very souped-up Landspeeder. They have a picture of a secondary land speeder called the XP-38, which is completely different. It actually looks a little bit like one of those land speeders that you see in uh, New Hope, kind of riding around in the background, which it doesn't have an open top. You know, it's not a convertible land speeder like Luke's, but it's kind of like an enclosed, I guess they call it like the family vehicle. But here you have a profile image where the driver is kind of inside, you know, with a, what appears to be a clear top so you can see who's inside. And it doesn't have such a roundish, you know, engines. They're more, you know, squarish, more angular looking. The presentation also has the snow speeder. And again, I think they only put it in there for reference because then it is followed by the sand speeder. Now, the sand speeder is super interesting because if you look at it, it looks just like a snow speeder, except it's more of an orangey color. It's got more prominent guns in a lot of the areas, and it has a couple of additional fins off to the sides. Now, if it's called a sand speeder, I assume it's because it's going to be used in some kind of a sand environment. Now, here's where things get bizarre. Very recently, Lego released a sand speeder set, which includes a sand speeder and a, looks like a moisture evaporator, but forget about that. That's not important. The sand speeder is identical to the Lego they released. Now, the Lego, you're not going to find it anywhere near the packaging or any description of the Lego saying that this is an homage, let's say, to this particular prototype that 
has been running around. But if you look at it, they really, they really did an excellent job trying to recreate it. I mean, it's not piece by piece the same. It is pretty close, but there is absolutely no way in hell that this is not supposed to look like that. <laughs> what I'm holding here, like I said, is the Lego version. It's not as orange as the, the prototype that we can see in these archives. And it does have some pieces that are slightly different, but there is absolutely no way that you can separate these two and say, oh, no, this is just a coincidence, or oh, no, no, this is supposed to represent something else. This is exactly what it was, and this is exactly what it is. And it's really interesting that somebody, you know, went to the trouble of going back, I think, and kind of mining for information here, you know, to create something new out of something very old. The Rebel SRV-1 Scout and Retrieval Vehicle. This is kind of like a snow thread truck transport, let's say. It's got a cab in the front. It's got guns on top of the cab, let's say. It's got these huge snow treads underneath. And the back is an open transport area, like the, like a, like a tow truck, let's say, or a, uh, or, or a flatbed, a flatbed. That's a better one. And in the pictures that they have, uh, that they took from the prototype that they built, it's supposed to be for Empire Strikes Back, and the way that they use it, you know, in the example here of all these pictures, is that you're supposed to be able to, because it has a hook also with a line running through it, you know, in the flat top section, you're supposed to be able to kind of grab a disabled snow speeder from the rear, or maybe we're using the harpoon. No, no, it actually has a hook. I can see the hook. And pull it into the back of the vehicle. The vehicle sides, they kind of fold down so that the flat bed is completely flat without any sides. And then you can just kind of, I guess you somehow crank it and pull the X-Wing, you know, through a ramp in the back, I guess, into the truck and off into, I guess, repairs or something. It was a cool little product. And I guess at some point they were considering it, bringing it, you know, even though it was an, an Empire Strikes Back design, you know, bringing it as a post possible vehicle, you know, for the line extension. Now, the presentation also had other items that are not shown in terms of they had no art or prototypes, but some of them included something called the light sword accessory. Hmm. Interesting. The Death Star Defender. Okay. The Imperial Destroyer the Desert Sail Skiff, and the Endor Forest Ranger. Now, what these could be maybe a smaller version of the lightsaber, almost like a light knife, let's say. There are some possible pictures uh, in, the, in the archives of that sort of thing. The Death Star Defender could be a prototype of one of the uh, mini rigs that they finally did put out, uh, you know, one of the harder to find ones. The Desert Sail Skiff eventually was put out, I believe, as a mini-rig. And the Endor Forest Ranger also ended up uh, being put out in some shape or form. You know, these are, again, possibly mini-rig prototypes. Oh, here's a cool one that is coming very... It's going to be very relevant pretty soon. The Millennium Falcon Cargo Handler. What you got here is a... Mm, what could be considered a smaller... I don't know if it's kind of like an escape pod or an additional fighter or it's labeled as a cargo handler. So in theory, it's something to put cargo in. Now, what this little thing is, is a, a tiny little fighter looking thing that should theoretically fit 
in between the mandibles of the falcon so that you have the falcon with a whole other section in the front it has guns on the sides and in the bottom and it seems to basically click into the falcon that you would you know already have owned what's interesting about this particular design is that we know we have the han solo movie coming and one of the leaked items from lego show the falcon for the film having a complete unopened mandible section in the front as if you have a cargo container possibly full in the you know mouth of the ship in the front uh, now we know from star wars uh <laughs> information that it the story goes that solo after getting the ship from lando ended up doing quite a number of modifications armaments and uh you know little tweaks that made it do a little different than what it used to be but this is something that's been floating around for a long time and that is yeah the the, the extension of the front of the falcon the imperial tie bomber boy this is an interesting one the imperial tie bomber is a is one of the few imperial tie ships that was never manufactured you know for the action figure line all of the other ones were the tie fighter the damaged tie fighter vader's tie fighter the tie interceptor was uh, manufactured even but the tie bomber never got any traction and was never fa manufactured uh, so here's an opportunity i guess that they were thinking well you know what we have one one tie variation left that appeared on screen let's give it a shot so that's that would have been an interesting one to put up the imperial sniper fighter this is an interesting little ship uh, i believe again this might have been a mini rig an eventual mini rig i don't know if it ever made it to anything but it, it kind of looks a little familiar it's a one-man fighter very small again this is mini rig territory okay we also have a picture of the adat the traditional empire strikes back adat and i think it's there just for reference because following that picture you have the imperial atic all-terrain iron cannon all right now this is something that's going to be pretty familiar to a lot of people what they did here is they took uh an adat that is normally painted gray and they gave it a slight orangey wash to it i don't know if that's supposed to imply that it's in a sand environment don't know possibly because you do see some stormtroopers and they're completely white so it's not like there was a problem with the picture now what they did with this adat is they basically cut out most of the top you know the back of it the top if you think of it as an animal as a dog let's say the top has been cut out part of the sides have been cut out and an entire back has been cut open so you have this big chunk missing you know from the back from the top through the back of the adat and inside sticking out of the adat is a gigantic gun now this is called the imperial atic the iron cannon so basically basically what they're implying is that they put a cannon on an adat and the cannon is facing towards the back of the adat not towards the front towards the back which is kind of unusual and to me it, it always looked bizarre it always looked like why would you do that it's so obviously a somebody who cut a hole in it and put another toy on top well if you think about it they kind of started messing with these concepts not too long ago rogue one for example 
featured these adats that had these removable sections in the middle for cargo hauling. So it would basically be an adat where the center section of the body would come right off and you would deposit it and then go get another one and bring it back and forth and back and forth. Then on The Last Jedi, they had, I think they call them the gorilla adats, uh, which were the ones that are you know, super monster size and there's you know more armaments. And they do have this gigantic gun coming out of their top, except it is facing forward. But it doesn't have this entire open area like it does on this particular picture for this particular prototype. So again, as ridiculous as these things seem at times, they do come back. There are times where people just come back to them for inspiration, I think, and, and end up actually using some of these designs. In the notes here, and again, not listed with pictures or designs, they do have a note stating that there's a Bantha in the works here. So that would be an interesting, again, talking about creatures, what we did before, here's one that they never originally touched. I guess it would be it would have been too difficult at the time to work with so much hair and fibers and leather and anything like that. I don't know if that's what they would have done in this case. I don't know if they would have just molded it completely in plastic. But it is interesting that they were actually thinking about that. And they also have something called the Imperial Outpost listed as a playset, which I have no idea what that would look like. That is an interesting uh, concept there. There's something in the deluxe vehicle section called the the Annihilator. Obviously, some kind of bad guy ship or something like that. And some of the other ones we talked about before. There's an Apex Invader, the Imperial TIE Bomber, Rebel, Rebel SVR-1. That's the Snow Speeder pickup vehicle and the Skyhopper. We got those. Then on the uh, low-end kind of vehicles, the DS-2 Droid Skimmer. We I think we talked about these. The XP-38 Landspeeder, the Falcon Cargo Holder, the Rebel Skinner Fighter, and the Imperial Sniper Fighter. Those we all talked about already. Now, as far as figures go, they actually did go as far as produce some prototypes and actually put out some art also of some potential stuff. One of them called the Mongo Beefhead Tribesman. <laughs> <laughs> These names are unbelievable. And it's a kitbash figure. I've seen many people do customs of these, and they come out pretty good. All the pieces are, uh, you know, you can find them somewhere. Let's see. The arms are from Hammerhead. The body and the head are from Squidhead. And the chest harness is for 4LOM. What they did with the head of Squidhead is they used the, the joint where the neck would be. That would be the face of the creature and the tentacles would be kind of like the hair so you took the what it is they took the head they flipped it up and that's how they kind of created a new creature and they just kind of stuck two eyes on, on that area it's really bizarre looking but it's again it's one of these little iconic things that collectors are like oh i remember that here's a great one that harkens back to the power of the force line Grand Moff Tarkin they do have a picture of Grand Moff Tarkin as one of the figures they would have liked to build. They don't have any actual prototypes in the mix here for that, which it's amazing because it would have been super easy. You already have an Imperial officer, but I guess they wanted to do something special. But this never saw the light of day. But it's interesting that they, you know, it makes perfect logical sense that where the hell is Tarkin? you got to create a Tarkin figure. Well, this would have been the chance to bring him in. And they do have a little paragraph describing this thing called the Atha Prime plotline, I guess it is, which is what Kenner was pitching as their story of, you know, 
where some of these creatures would be operating as far as a, their placement in the EU, the expanded universe, which at the time didn't even exist. And it says here, a powerful force long kept in exile in a remote fringe of the galaxy has been released by the death of the emperor. It moves now like a plague, securing control over the shattered remnants of the empire and enslaving new, newly freed worlds. Sound familiar? First order? Mm-hmm. Atha Prime. Genetic masters rule the dark worlds and architects of the Clone Wars. Ooh, that's interesting. Clone Wars is free again. His advanced army of combat clones has already decimated rebel outposts along the galactic frontier. His goal is to crush forever the rebel alliance and control the galaxy. It's like, okay, interesting. That's, uh, I guess that's, that's, you know what? It doesn't sound any, uh, more out of this world than anything else we've seen lately. And they do have some conceptual artwork. Wow, this stuff looks this looks pretty good. Of some of the um, the Apex Invader vehicles that we that's some of the ones we mentioned earlier. They're very triangular looking. Uh, wow, it looks almost like the uh, the it looks a little bit like the um, uh, Last Jedi bomber turned upside down. Almost, it's interesting. Here's the Atha Prime concept art. I guess this is supposed to be the main bad guy. Okay. What's interesting about this character is that it was completely unused, obviously. However, many, many years later, Hasbro used it, at least the concept art and the design of an action figure, based on that character. It's kind of like a red robe character with this kind of pointy helmet, very regal looking. And from what I understand, it was eventually made into the expanded universe Imperial Sentinel Kenner action figure in 98. Uh, so, as I mentioned before, a lot of these things, they go into storage and then they come out again in some shape or form when they're looking for ideas. They start mining for information and designs and here's where they come from. Oh, there's actually a picture of the Bantha. Again, this is all concept and it is still hard to tell whether or not this would have been real hair or plastic. There's the Clone Warrior concept artwork and this is interesting. This looks a lot like a Stormtrooper a little bit. It has a red robe also attached to it and a completely different face mask with like a pretty big breathing apparatus in front. That's an interesting looking one. I really couldn't tell you that they recycle this concept because it does not look very familiar to anything that I've seen, you know, post Star Wars. HP 38 Landspeeder concept art. Here's another uh, drawing of that vehicle that I was talking about earlier. A much nicer drawing this time. Different angles. Yeah, this is nice. This is interesting. It, like I said before, it does have, it is a more sleeker, fancier looking ship with a, uh, with like a giant spoiler on the top, connecting the two engines almost in a, in a circular oval shape. This would have been a nice one. This would have been a really cool one to have. All right, so now the Imperial Outpost we talked about earlier, here's a concept drawing, and it's basically a gigantic tower so that you can park your ADAT next to, which is, that's a very interesting, good idea. That would have been uh, something nice to have, but because it is so big, you know, compared, you know, when you look at it here, it, it looks a little bit like the Rebel Outpost in Endor, a combination of the radar dish facility, the landing facility, and the area where the ADATs kind of park themselves. It looks like a combination of all of those put into one. And yeah, that would have been a huge, huge playset that there's no way in hell they would have made that. Too expensive, and, and they probably wouldn't have sold enough of them. But uh, it does, it is neat looking. They have some potential artwork for a post-Return of the Jedi Han Solo. Uh, 
which looks really weird because he's wearing a very colorful shirt and he has these tan color sleeves on his jacket that almost make it look as if he's wearing a sleeveless jacket and he's just kind of flashing the muscles. And I know he's not, but it looks that way. It's almost like a pirate shirt. It's really weird looking. Then you have a post-Jedi Luke. Yeah, you know, it's different. It, it is so EU and so comic bookish looking that it's... Plus, he's he's holding a red lightsaber, which is really not what he's supposed to be holding, I think. <laughs> it's really interesting. And there is some, let's see, artwork of the Annihilator. Finally, we get to see that when we saw the list. And what it looks like they did here <laughs> is they stacked like two... Star Destroyers, one on top of each other. <laughs> so it's like a Star Destroyer on top of another Star Destroyer. Again, not very imaginative, just like complete brainstorm situation here. But, you know, it's interesting to see the artwork. Now, there are some other pictures out there, you know, also around that time, of a X-Wing model um, that is supposed to be, I think they call it like a training vehicle or like a training x-wing and the way it works is that you have two cockpits one behind the other a dual cockpit x-wing which kind of makes it a little longer by having that second cockpit what's unusual about the x-wing itself is that it's primarily black it still has the red and yellow coloring but there is no sign of white at all these are black colored ships and the pilot in one of the pictures you can see has it looks just like an X-Wing pilot, an X-Wing Luke pilot figure, but this one has the visor down, which means it is possible that maybe at that point they were considering making a another version of the X-Wing pilot. Uh, this one, so it doesn't have to be a, a generic Luke, but a, you know, just another pilot. They could even, I believe, color the hands black, so it looks like he's wearing gloves. I've seen a lot of customizers do that, so that's a possibility too. Now, along the line, I know that there were lots of talks about some other concept figures that never made it. There was a Yarna figure that never made it, but they did produce, you know, the the, the elements to, to produce it. But they it never actually made it up the, the line. There was a Jedi Luke also, which was more kind of like a Luke head with a... Anakin body. A lot of people have customized their own versions of that. I think I'm going to eventually do one too. And yeah, obviously that never saw the light of day. Now there are some pictures on the internet of a completely plastic Bantha, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, with a traditional Tuscan Raider on top. It is uh, labeled as a unproduced uh, prototype, so it is possible that they made one. I'm not sure as to the accuracy of the picture. Now what you'll also find on the internet is a lot of pictures of existing mini rigs and the prototypes that led to that specific mini rig so yeah there's a lot of stuff like that too that is not necessarily something that would have continued the line but it's stuff that led to whatever it is that you have towards the end of the line there is also the uh the different uh, Wookiees, again, those might have been customs, but they do show up sometimes when you do a search. There is another robot-looking uh, character, which is similar to the um, medical droid one I said before, the FX-7 body. But then what they did is on top, they added all these guns uh, from from vehicles. I think one of them might be from a, from a Y-Wing and from other droids to kind of create a very robotic-looking um, armed super armed up character again very forgettable got nowhere 
And the other one that seems to pop up a couple of times here and there is the White Witch, I believe from the Droid series. This is one of these ships that almost made it to the end in terms of how far along they got with production because a lot of the data we find includes not only the ship itself completely painted and completely packaged. So that's very interesting how some of these lines got so far before they actually ended up pulling the plug on it. Now, because it's droids or uh, Ewoks or anything like that, that it's, that's something that's normally completely out of my radar. Uh, but it is, you know, interesting to know that, you know, these things, you know, can go so far before they completely lose any interest for people. So this pretty much brings us to the end of these potential concept, you know, future of the canner line that never got anywhere. But as I mentioned before, it's what's really interesting is that just like with most of these big franchise type of properties, all this conceptual artwork, all these prototypes, all these ideas, whether they're written, produced, or, you know, just talked about, a lot of times do find their way into the future. Just like, you know, some of these future films are still being inspired by the Macquarie art. The toy lines seem to be going in that direction too. Every now and then you will find something that is like, wait a minute, that looks very familiar. That came from the blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden you'll make that connection that, yeah, some of this conceptual stuff or prototypes that didn't go anywhere somehow found their way to a more modern item like a toy or a movie. Let's take a quick break now and listen to a little spot from our friends at IC Robots. If you're into anything having to do with retro, vintage toys and 80s shows and all kinds of 80s and 70s vintage retro kind of games, television, movies, all of that geek culture that we love here at GeekFest Rants, take a look when you visit their site they have a podcast called The Toys R Us Report, and we strongly recommend it. So have a listen. Tune in to The Toys R Us Report for your weekly dose of pop culture talk that's out of this world. Movies, TV, toys, comics, and more every Wednesday on the IC Robots Radio Network at icrobots.com. What are you waiting for? It's time to get down or come up. All right, we're back. Thank you guys from IC Robots, and let's continue with our show. Today in our collectible segment, we are going to talk about something that is not necessarily something you can purchase yourself, but it's something that I actually made myself. Uh, this is something you could make too, if you're interested. What I'm talking about here is a, how should we phrase it? It's a genre sign, destination sign, or where to go sign. The best way to describe it, and you'll see pictures when I post it, is if you guys remember MASH, uh, the television show MASH, they used to have this signpost where it had everybody's hometown destinations aiming in different directions and how many miles to there. So it would say like, you know, San Francisco that way or Honolulu here, 3,000 miles, you know, whatever. And it was a huge, you know, probably about as eight foot tall sign with everybody's uh, destinations pointing in that direction. Well, I in the past have seen variations on that design of a sign uh, having to do with genre-related things. Now, the way this started is I bought my family, I think it was about a year ago or a little over a year ago, a poster 
that they're very popular and they make them for many different genres or subgenres, if you will, that says, in this house, we do geek. And then it has all these different uh, quotes or, you know, we travel to a galaxy far, far away. We go where no man has gone before. You know, the, the particular sign that I bought encompasses all or many, obviously, many of the different genre interests that we're, that we're into, you know. So, it, it does cover a lot of the uh, different geeky, nerdy uh, things we're into. And it's a cute little sign. And that kind of gave me the idea of, wait a minute, I could have swore I saw once uh, signs that had to do with genre things. So, I went on the internet and started looking at pictures of what some people have done. And a lot of them are outdoor signs. They put them out in the in the garden or near a beach or, you know, somewhere like something like that. So I started to get the idea, all right, well, I'd like to uh, build things myself. You know, I, I, I'd like to do carp, especially carpentry related things I like to do sometimes. And, you know, to me, this was kind of like a challenge. Okay, I'm going to try this, see if it works. My initial idea was to have uh, one or two signs on our front door so that when you approach our house, you could see, you know, on either side of the door, all these different locations, uh, but all of them genre related. So you would have Tatooine, you would have Vulcan, you would have, you know, all these crazy genre things that we're into. So I started doing the research in terms of, on one hand, I needed to figure out where the locations were. So I asked my family to for them to come up with, because I was coming up with my own list. And, you know, in order for something this big to... <laughs> <laughs> be presentable, I would have to include everybody else's uh, interests in the project. So, you know, they came up with a list, my, my wife uh, and my son and my daughter, they came up with a list and some of them matched the things that I had. Some of them were, you know, things that I didn't personally have, but things that they were interested in, you know. So, once I had the amount of information and, and the amount of signs that I was going to make, you know, it added up to quite a bit and it kind of felt like, yeah, to get all these signs... Uh, we are probably going to have to do two, which kind of reinforced my original idea of two signs because there was quite a number of locations. Uh, at one point I was thinking, well, maybe we'll just have to, I'll, I'll have to select only, uh, uh, eight of them and, and, and we'll just do eight because there's not enough room. But then I started thinking going into the, you know, the dual sign mode. So anyway. On the internet, I started looking at people who have done that, that sort of thing and looking at pictures and they had all kinds of designs in terms of some of them were just the mast of the sign would be stuck in the ground somewhere and, and you know, the, the slats of, of the, you know, pointers, the direction pointers would, you know, just go right on it. Uh, some of them were made uh, in, in like big giant flower pots. So the flower pots would be filled with either rocks or cement or something and you would put the stick in there too. Uh, some of them would be kind of like a, like a coat hanger uh, stand, you know, where, where you have an X-shaped foot uh, made out of wood in the bottom, holding it up so you can put it indoors somewhere. So there were a lot of different options. So I started researching and researching. And also the, the slots, the actual pieces of wood where you would write down the information of the destinations, some of them were very plain. Some of them were plain, but maybe with a slight point. So that would point in a certain direction. Some of them were made with like driftwood. So it looked like the wood was like cracked and torn and it has been, you know, weathered quite a bit. Uh, so again, there were many different options for that. So the way, the direction that I went was I went for the, uh, the coat hanger style, which is the one with the X in the bottom holding it. 
And the signs themselves, uh, you know, I, I really like the, the driftwood look, but it would have been very, very hard, first of all, to find that kind of wood and to be able to draw on it somehow to put that information. The other thing to keep in mind is that I wanted the information on the signs. Like, for example, let's say if you're using Vulcan, which is one of the ones I used, I wanted to use a Vulcan font looking thing you know, as close as possible to either a poster or some kind of a reference material that makes it kind of look like that. So I quickly decided on a plain flat surface for the signs themselves. So when I went shopping, I bought, uh, because I was, again, in, in this dual mode, I bought two of everything. So I got enough wood for two stands, two foot, you know, that X-shaped foot part of the stand, and all the screws needed. The slats, I got pretty, I would say, medium-grade wood because I wanted something very solid, very plain, with not a lot of notches on it because I'm going to be drawing on this. Uh, so I would say that, you know, medium-grade wood. For the stand itself and the feet, I got the low-end wood uh, stuff because it's, it, it would be completely covered. You know, you wouldn't really see much of it, so it didn't really matter that much. So the other thing that I had to get and I had to figure out is how to attach not only the feet to the stand, but the slots, the actual signs to the stand. And one option, obviously, that a lot of people do use is just to put a screw right through the wood from one piece of the wood into the other and just screw them on. I decided against that because I didn't want to, number one, see the screws and I didn't want to have to paint over the screws or have to draw around the screws to avoid the screws and because i was going to put this outdoors i didn't want those screws to get worn and rusty and then you know having to take them out and replace them every now and then so instead what i used is if you go to the section in a home depot or a lowe's for example where they have obviously lumber and uh there's usually a section where people have these metal attachments for when you're building a deck where you can kind of take this these metal I don't know what you can call them. They're kind of like L-shaped brackets, and sometimes they're U-shaped brackets, and they're all types of brackets that that hug pieces of wood, planks of wood, so that you can then screw them onto another piece of wood. Uh, well, if you go there, they have ones that are small enough for the size of what I was working with. So I was working with about, a, I don't know, about an inch or an inch and a half pole. So they do have these that attach, you know, to that pole and then have these flat T-shapes at the other ends where you can then attach another piece of wood to it. So that's what I used. This way, the face of the sign has no screws seen. All the work is being done behind it. So that's kind of neat uh, to be able to do that. And for the legs, you know, the, the, the cross section legs in the bottom, same thing. They have special attachments that you can kind of connect all these legs individually to the post and then you have that basic shape now without uh, having to go too much between one piece of wood and another piece of wood so i brought all that home and i started doing some basic coloring to it in terms of uh this is raw wood basically that you're dealing with so for the stand itself and the legs i gave it a wood finish color kind of like again a medium kind of color not very dark not very light but enough so that the feet and the pole match. You know, this is after I assembled it, of course. But then one thing I noticed, once I assembled it, I noticed that it was still a little wobbly. That this is a structure that's about maybe seven feet tall, maybe close to eight feet tall. And 
just because of its length, it's so huge that the bottom, the legs, no matter how sturdy I screw them on, there's a little bit of wiggle room, you know, when you kind of push it. Now, granted, this thing wasn't meant to be pushed, but I just didn't feel it was secure enough. So what I did is I had at home these smaller pieces of wood, uh, sticks, I don't know, you, know, call them, you can't call them sticks, uh, planks, these little thin planks, half an inch by an inch, you know, pretty long places. So what I ended up doing was that at every leg, I created a triangle so that that gave it a support. So every leg is secured by a little triangular piece that keeps it more at a 90 degree angle. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Basically, I'm creating 90 degree angles everywhere to to make those legs uh, have more support to the base. I also uh, stained those pieces so that everything matches. Great, wonderful. So those were done and ready to go. Then the the actual planks, well, because I was going to do so many different things, I wanted to have different color backgrounds. And obviously, you can go completely crazy. You can buy 17 different colors if you go to the store, but I didn't want to spend that kind of money, obviously. So I, I basically picked four pastel kind of colors, colors that whatever you put on top would pop. So I didn't want to go with things that were very dark, and I didn't want to go with anything kind of like white, because white will get discolored and dirty so easy, and browns and blacks and dark blues or dark anythings, I was afraid that they would just eat up whatever text I would put on top. So I I, I went for some basic pastels, light blues, uh, yellows, kind of orange, kind of light greens, that kind of color. So I took all my planks, and I cut them to different size. Uh, and this is something that I had to figure out early on. For spacing purposes, some of them, what I did was I cut them to the size of what the information that was going to be written on was. Uh, now, granted, it was kind of, you know, hit or miss in terms of these planks that I bought. I don't know. They were about three feet long, more or less, maybe three and a half feet long, maybe four feet. So I would take those and cut them into either two or three pieces. So I would have a, a combination of different sizes. At first... I painted the whole thing the way they were. So in other words, I took these three and a half to four foot long planks, put them flat and spray painted them. I got, I actually bought spray paint. Uh, I think I got some kind of like um, semi-gloss, a very low gloss uh, kind of paint because I also bought a container of just semi-gloss to be able to spray the whole project when I was done. But at least it would have some kind of a surface to it to start with. So I did them all in four different colors and had them all ready. And then I started cutting them because what was happening then is some I would do double names. I decided at some point I'm going to do double names. I don't want to cut them individually because if I cut them individually, I would be creating so many individual signs that I might actually run out of space. So I purposely left some signs double. In other words, you have a destination on the left, a destination on the right. Each end of that sign would be cut at an angle to kind of simulate the arrow pointing in one direction or pointing in another direction. For the ones that are single, I would leave one end completely 90 degrees, and then the other end would be the one where I would generate the little arrow pointing, you know, the angular cuts at the end to, to generate the arrow. I kind of fiddled around a little bit with the idea of putting kind of like a three-dimensional arrow on it, putting a little bit of a triangular wood cut that I have leftovers and kind of, 
gluing them on top to create a 3D kind of arrow, but I didn't want to go that direction. It, it seemed a little too crazy at the time, and instead I chose to leave it the way it was. So yeah, after that, you know, after you cut them, you have to then recolor, you know, those cuts that you made, you have to insert the color. So, you know, the spray paint, I had to spray into a cup and then be able to use it because it was a spray paint. I didn't want to mess around with it too much because a lot of this actually happened after I put the art. So then came the point where I have to add the art to all of these signs. Well, the different ones I had, again, I started researching on the internet, all my different interests. And, you know, you go from Star Wars to Star Trek to Planet of the Apes to Alien to uh, uh, Flash Gordon. Every geeky thing that I'm into and my family is into, I started looking for the art. So I ended up with something like, I think, 25 different destinations <laughs> between all of our interests. So... The first thing I did is I went online again. I, I, what I wanted to do is, like I mentioned earlier, I wanted to generate signs that they weren't just random fonts. We, they weren't all the same fonts. I wanted all the fonts to practically be different from each other. And one of the best ways to do that is to research whatever it is that you're using as an example. So, for example, if I go to Star Wars, I wanted to look a, for a Star Wars-y looking font. If I go to Doctor Who, I wanted something that kind of looked Doctor Who-ish. So... Through the internet, I went around and I found all different things from posters, from some of them are probably fan made, uh, from books, from whatever. I found my entire list of what fonts I was going to use with the name of the destination already in that manner. So my options at that point were pretty clear. I could either draw them by hand, you know, copy them by hand from the computer, which I am just not that good <laughs> to be able to do that. I could somehow trace them. And tracing is difficult because, I mean, yes, I could print the name of something from a computer, you know, from a, from a shot of the internet. Okay. The problem is that once I print it and I put it over that piece of wood, it most likely is going to be the wrong size. I needed to be able to manipulate the size at will to make it bigger or smaller, depending on the piece of wood that I'm using. So the tracing option also was a little difficult uh, to do. I would have to print this thing in like 10 different sizes to be able to then pick the right size. So then I remembered a long time ago when I was, oh boy, let me think, maybe I was about 11, 10 or 11 years old. I did this painting for school and the painting consisted of the Statue of Liberty. Now, I, I couldn't draw it freehand because I, I wasn't that good. I'm, I'm still not that good, you know, as an artist in terms of drawing. So what I figured out was that if I took a little model of the Statue of Liberty, which I had, I had a plastic model because I remember I had visited the Statue of Liberty and I guess I must have bought the model at the gift shop. The model was about, I don't know, about a foot tall, let's say. So if I took the model and I placed a light behind the model, like a lamp, like a little spotlight lamp, it would generate a shadow on the wall of the outline of the Statue of Liberty. Granted, the shadow wouldn't be perfect, but it would be enough to get you know, the more or less the proper dimensions of it. So what I did is I put my canvas in front of the Statue of Liberty and the light behind it. And as I moved the light back and forth, I was able to adjust the size of the shadow that was generated on the canvas for the Statue of Liberty to what I wanted it to be. And once I had the right size by manipulating the light, I was then able to trace the edge of the shadow to create that outline that I wanted. Now, granted, I, th this is not exactly what I did, but it's kind of in that realm. What I did here is I borrowed a projector, a, a computer projector, the type of projector that you can plug in any type of device, a uh, DVD player, uh, a computer, you know, a laptop, that sort of thing. So I took that file that I had all my pictures of all the 
destinations with the proper fonts, and I started projecting them one by one on a piece of wood. So with the projector's controls, I was able to zoom in and zoom out, make it bigger, make it smaller. And once I found the right size of where I wanted that destination to be on the piece of wood, that's where I would then take a pencil and trace it. So that took a while. That was hard work because it was a lot of signs. And believe it or not, the different grooves in the wood would make it sometimes very difficult, you know, to be able to draw on it. Also, the thinner the font, the more difficult it was because, again, the because of the wood grain, wood wants you to go in a certain direction when you apply force to it. Just like when you cut wood, you know, the, there's an easy way of cutting it and a harder way of cutting it. The wood is more resistance to your cut depending on which direction. Are you going with the grain or against the grain? Same thing with, draw, you know, drawing on it. When you draw on wood... If you go with the grain, it moves really smooth and easy. I also think that because I had to buy those signposts slats at two different locations, I might have purchased a different quality of wood, one better than the other, because I did notice that some of them, writing was so much easier than the other one that was a little more difficult. So now I have all my wood with the proper fonts on pencil. The next step is to start, you know, actually coloring it. Now the coloring... I went in different directions. Some of the coloring I used whatever it was that the art depicted, and some of them I went on my own because I wanted a specific color for that particular thing. So I used acrylic paints, a cheapy, you know, little dollar, two dollar acrylic paints. My daughter has a ton of them because she does a lot of arts and crafts stuff. Uh, you can buy them anywhere, Walmart, you know, they're very cheap, very simple paints. So I was able to do that. And then what I also noticed was that uh, one of the signs that I did which was the Tatooine sign. The particular art that I was using for the OO in Tatooine, the OOs, uh, what they did was they made the O's bigger and they're kind of out of frame with each other. They're slightly out of frame and they're painted in two different colors to simulate the suns, the color of the Tatooine suns, the twin suns. And I really enjoy that. The fact that you have the name and some art that's also associated with the name. That was really cool. And I kept thinking how cool that that was looking to me. So then what I started doing is for all the signs that I made, which the piece of wood had some uh, leftover space, unused space, a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit of unused space, specifically in between the two, uh, you know, the dual ones. When I have those dual signs in the middle where there's some dead space, what I did was I started researching some art to add that has to do with one of those two locations or some of the single ones give it a little piece of art too. So I started doing that a lot. I have Amityville Island. I have a shark fin. Hawkins, Indiana. I have a, a an Eggo waffle. Vulcan. I have the uh, the hand Vulcan salute. Gotham. I have uh, the Batman uh, signal. Grover's Mill, New Jersey. I have a War of the Worlds tripod uh, ship. Moonbase Alpha. I have uh, the Earth and the Moon. Pandora, I have the Navi eye with the with those little white specks on the nose. Mongo from Flash Gordon, I have Flash Gordon's uh, lightning bolt sign from his shirt. The grid from Tron, I have Tron's symbol, the circular symbol that he has. A Gallifrey, I have a, a little TARDIS there. Middle Earth, I have a ring from Lord of the Rings. Anchoron uh, from um, Aliens, I have a silhouette of an actual xenomorph. King's Landing, I have a sword. And Castle Rock, I have a red balloon. 
I have other destinations that I didn't bother to put any art because I either ran out of space or I couldn't think of anything. Uh, I have Ape City also. Oh, I have Samaria, uh, which I do have Conan's Victory uh, Medal. Uh, I have Narnia. Oh, I have uh, Hogwarts with the Lightning Bolt, Harry's Lightning Bolt. I have Outpost 31, and I do have a, a drawing I made of the dog from uh, the thing. Uh, I have uh, Caprica. I have Night Vale, which is one of my daughter's interests. I have uh, Asgard, and I did draw the hammer, Thor's hammer. And I do have 221 Baker Street. Uh, so those are all my different options that I have and, and all the different things that I've drawn extra to it. Another thing that I did was that I wanted to create either a shadow or an outline. And the shadow seemed a little too difficult to do for everything because it would have been a lot of uh, uh, highlighting that I would have to do. But the outline uh, was a little easier. What I ended up doing it was at first I was trying to draw the outline with a brush because all this was done by brush. All the art, all the lettering, it was all done by brush, which is kind of hard. I had to wear, you know, magnifying glasses and, you know, keep my, keep my wrist really steady. But for the outline, because they were such thin lines and it's very difficult to do a thin, steady line, I actually went and bought Sharpies. So for the, for when I, whenever I was creating a black outline, I would use a black Sharpie, a very, uh, a regular thickness Sharpie, you know, as long as it has a point, but for whatever reason, I had to go through so many of them because something in the paint would get caught in there and they would stop working, so I would have to keep switching them. But then I also bought these special paint markers, special paint Sharpies that either have a gold or a silver color to them. So I was able to use those on some other ones. This way you can generate a little bit of a different color to them, especially whenever I use very dark you know, blacks or browns for the lettering itself. I didn't want to, I couldn't do black on black. I couldn't do black on brown. So I ended up doing gold on black or silver on black. So those kind of ended up looking really good too. So when this whole thing was done, put it all together and I realized, you know, my wife's looking at it and he's like, you know, I really don't want to have two, two is too many. And, and I did seem to have enough room. So I was able to kind of spread them all out on the same pole so that all 25 of them are on that one pole and instead of putting them outdoors we actually brought it indoors because it was kind of like it looks so nice that i don't want it to get messed up outside i don't want the humidity or the weather or the rain or anything to hit it uh so you know originally it was supposed to be an, an outdoor uh decoration but now it became an indoor decoration we, you know, we have it in the kitchen which is where we have that other geek sign that i was uh, telling you about earlier Again, 25 is a lot of signs, is a lot of destinations, but keep in mind, a lot of them are doubled up. So it might be 25 destinations, but it's only 15 signs because like I said, some of them are doubled up. I am going to include some pictures there for you guys to see it, but this is, uh, you know, this is something different. This is something if you're into, if you're into doing crafts and your own kind of stuff, you know, this is a, this isn't a one day project. This takes a while. Super helpful was the projector. To be able to use a projector to manipulate the image the way that you would digitally manipulate it, you know, on a computer in terms of make it bigger, make it smaller, make it sharp, you know, all that stuff works perfectly. And this is also the type of thing that is so personal that it's really not the type of thing you, you can buy because, I mean, yes, somebody, you, you might be able to find them on the internet, but it doesn't have everything you want. The other cool thing about this is that you could remove a sign and put a new sign up. You can remove them individually without affecting the other ones. You could actually, I could even take a secondary pole that I already made, I already painted, I already did the whole thing, you know, it's already stained, and I could create a second one. I could take out some of these 
destinations, put them on a second sign and create a completely different, you know, sign holder because all these pieces can be relocated, you know, without affecting the face of the signs. I can just unscrew them from the back and lower them and raise them, you know, wherever I want them or transfer them to a different pole. And like I said before, the best thing about it is that it's completely customizable in terms of your particular genre interests. You can make this all Star Wars locations. You can make it all Doctor Who locations. You know, whatever happens to be your thing, you can turn it into that. For our purposes, you know, we are a geek family. So, you know, we all have our share of, oh, I love this. I love that. So this is a, a, a really cool representation of what we're all about. All right, well, I hope you guys enjoyed our two different pieces today. First, we had our Kenner 8586 line that was never manufactured, the one that was proposed to Lucasfilm that was basically rejected. And how interesting it is that nowadays, the remnants of that line still seem to kind of sprinkle itself on future projects and toys and all types of different things that, you know, they always say nothing gets thrown away, everything gets stored and then eventually it might come back in some shape or form. Well, that is very true because a lot of this material that was used for this proposed line every now and then seems to kind of pop its head out and <laughs> all of a sudden the people that are into this sort of thing are like, wait a minute, I recognize this. This was something that was proposed back in blah, blah, you know. So it's really, really interesting, you know, where some of these current ideas are coming from. Then we talked about my sign project, my genre signs project, and how I came about with it and, you know, how to do it yourself. If you're interested in doing such a thing, you know, it's a little do-it-yourself project that, uh, you know, I've never had a chance to put together on our show. Uh, so I'm giving you guys the option of being able to Maybe you want to do this yourselves. It's the type of thing you can't really go and buy at the store, you know, pre-made. You could buy it, but it might not have everything you want. And it might actually have stuff you don't want. So I found that the best way to do it is just to do it yourself. And if I can do it, I'm sure most of you can do it too. It's a very simple project, a little time consuming, but the end result is really fun. You know, especially when you have a geek nerdy family like mine that are into all these different interests. And it's the type of thing that could grow and could change you could remove certain parts and put new parts on it so that's kind of cool too so i hope you guys enjoyed today's show on behalf of everybody here thanks for listening and we will see you here soon at geek fest rants bye-bye everybody a long time ago in a galaxy far far away here they come star wars coming in too fast an adventure unlike anything on your planet it's an epic of heroes and villains and aliens from a thousand worlds Star Wars rated PG If you would like to subscribe to our show send us messages or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>